Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Shabbos morning, I was trying to get out of bed, and I was wiggling my toes. So, I didn't read that anywhere. I just kind of came up with that one time which was some way to kind of just motivate myself to get out of bed. You know, getting out of bed in the morning is a real art form, and some mornings it's easier, and some mornings it's harder. And my thought I hit upon one time was that if I can kind of just get my body moving, in in this instance, just sort of wiggling my toes, that that will send a message to the rest of my body to get out of bed. So Shabbos morning, I'm lying on my right side in the wake-up position, according to the Rambam, right? You go to bed on your left side, you wake up on your right side, and even if you don't naturally go to bed on your left side, you can just start on your left side, just to makayim the sheet of the Rambam, as they say, just to have that in mind. By the way, he brings that there's health benefits to it, that your stomach lays along your liver, which warms your stomach, which aids digestion, so there's something to it just on a very non-mystical level. Then you wake up on your right side, right? Again, if you kind of find yourself conscious and you're on your left side or on your back, you can just move to your right side before you get out of bed. Again, to makayim the sheet of the Rambam, to do the words of the Rambam. And, you know, over the years of doing it, different ideas have come to me that have sort of added on to this idea of waking up, which is you're going from the left to the right, right? From gvora, gvora ends things. Remember, the final letters of each word when you have a, a verse in the Torah. It's called Sofei Tevos, the last letters of the words, or the actual five final letters of the olive base. Spiritually speaking, is Gvura, Din. Well, why? Because it, it ends something. It ends a word, right? So why go to bed on your left side? On a more mystical level, because you're ending the day. It's the end of the day. And then you wake up on the right side. Why? Because you're turning gvura into chesed. The right is chesed. Starting the day with chesed. Remember, one of the kavanas why people would wake up or start davening at nates, that's like right when the sun is coming out. Actually, the truth is when you daven nates, that's what it's called, you're supposed to begin the Shemona Esrei. That's the key prayer of the morning prayers. You're supposed to begin the Shemona Esrei right as the sun is breaking through the horizon. Which means that you're beginning the davening actually while it's still dark out. Now, why is that such a special time for prayers? And it's really considered halakhically a very special time. Why? Because it's optimal to daven in a minion. But if you daven even by yourself, nates, it counts as though you davened in a minion. In other words, it has such spiritual power, davening nates, that even if you're davening alone, it's like you're diving in a minion. Now that's a good thing to know, especially if you're traveling. A lot of times people are traveling and they can't necessarily make it to a minion, but that's, that's an extra insensitive, an, an extra incentive to get up early and dive in nates, because then you can actually, it's like you've davened in a minion. So that's something to keep in mind. Anyway, there I am wiggling my toes, trying to get out of bed. <laughs> oh, the point that I wanted to make was that before the sun goes up, God is preparing all the kindnesses that he's going to bless the world with. 
that coming day. So that's why, like, the darkness before the dawn, from the heavenly perspective, is a very propitious time, as they say. It's a very opportune time, because God is preparing all the kindnesses that he's going to reveal to the world in the upcoming day. Okay. So, I'm on my right side at Shabbos, and I'm wiggling my toes, trying to motivate myself to get out of bed. And, and the following thoughts came down, so I want to share them with you. Okay. So, one of the hallmark thoughts of Judaism is that each person is a microcosm of the universe. You are a miniature of the entire universe. Now, that has many, 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 many implications. And it's a very empowering thought because basically what it means is you fix yourself, you fix the entire world. That whatever incremental change that you can make in terms of your own, your own spirituality, your, you know, whatever you can do to perfect your own soul is actually going to have reverberations on the entire universe. Now... One of the ways that we've discussed that is that there are five levels to the soul. Part of your soul is inside of you, and part of your soul is outside of you and extends all the way up to the throne of glory, to the Kisei covet, which means every single person straddles the entire universe, which means everything good that you do literally en encompasses the entire universe. So that's just another way of thinking about it. Even when you're alone in your house, you say a prayer, you're alone in your house, and you know, it says that you're supposed to serve God privately and publicly. Publicly is a little bit more easy. People are looking at you. You want to make a good impression on people. So when you serve God publicly, sometimes it's a little less l'shem shamayim, a little bit less for the sake of heaven. But when no one's looking and you're inside your house, and you do something that no one is ever going to see and no one is ever going to know about. Sometimes that the reverberation from that is much stronger. So, so these are beautiful thoughts to have because it really strengthens you. It really strengthens you. And there's an extra bonus, which is that it's 100% true, <laughs> which is even better, right? Okay. So let's get back to the agenda. I'm in bed and I'm wiggling my toes. <laughs> what, does that to do? what does that have to do with anything? Well, actually, you know, Kabbalistically, it's, it turned out to be a giant thought. I wasn't anticipating it, but it is. And, and I'll tell you the following. Again, we're working from the standpoint that each person is a microcosm of the universe. So, basically, the toes is, are connected to the head. The toes are connected to the head. Because each person is one coherent, integrated structure. We've been talking about the name Yaakov and Yosef. I was telling you that Yaakov and Yosef are actually the same name. Yaakov is Yud Ekev. Ekev is the heel, the foot. Yud is the highest letter. You know, you might tell me that, well, wait a second, maybe Aleph is the highest letter. Well, guess what? When you make an Aleph, you know what's at the very upper tip of an Aleph? A Yud. So, basically, everything begins with the letter Yud. And when we talk about Hashem, 
willing the universe into creation, that transition from thought into deed, the very first manifestation of God's thought into deed is represented Kabbalistically as the letter Yud materializing in the universe. That, that tiny dot of materiality where thought crosses over into deed, where the infinite crosses over into the finite. That's the letter Yud. That's the highest, highest, highest. Okay, so, so Yaakov is Yud Ekev. In other words, it's going from the very, very top all the way down to the foot, from the top to the bottom. So how is Yaakov and Yosef the same name? Because if you rearrange the last three letters of Yosef, I realized one time, the last three letters of Yosef actually spell the word sof, which means end, which means Yosef is also yud end. Yud sof, yud ekev. It's the same name. It's talking about straddling the very highest reaches of heaven all the way down to the end. I told you that if you, if you watch yourself walk from one room into the other, the very last part of you that leaves the room before you enter into the new room, you can do this. You can do this as a test. You'll see what I'm saying is true, is your heel. Isn't it interesting that the end of days are called ikvei de Mashiach, which means the heel, the heel of Mashiach. That's the end. In other words, when the top thought becomes ma manifest at the bottom, which are the feet, or the toes, let's just say, because that's where I'm going, that's when everything becomes complete. Ikve de Mashiche. Why would it be called the heel? Right? Like, the Mashiach time should be called the heel? That's, that's not very covetic. That's not very honorable. But no, the idea is that the top idea is become completely manifest. Completely manifest down below. It's now become fully realized. That, that's why it's associated with the heel. Rabbi Wolfson also brings something very, very interesting that can give our generation hope. You know, the heel is the least sensitive part of the body. Now, God could have created our bodies any way he wanted to. He could have put our eyeballs on our heels. Can you imagine? Or our brains on our heels. Like, can you imagine? That would be horrible. That would be horrible. So God, in his infinite kindness, in his infinite wisdom, put the least sensitive part of our body in the place that is going to endure the most stress. Now, what Rabbi Wolfson does with that idea is really amazing. He says that the last generation represented the heel of the generations, right? At the time of Mashiach, the last generations will be the most, you ready for this? Spiritually insensitive. That's a very remarkable correlation because you might think that the generations that you know, that we've lost. Where's our Chassam Sofer? Where's our Baal Shem Tov? Where's our Rabbi Akiva? Where's our Moshe Rabbeinu in these days? Where's our Lubavitcher Rebbe in these days? How, how are we going to have Mashiach without these great people walking among us? And you see, based on this model, 
that actually the last generations are going to be the most spiritually insensitive. And that that actually in and of itself is a sign of the coming of the end of days. Very interesting. And so there's something that I like to call bad math. What's bad math? Bad math is when someone thinks that God is close to me in direct proportion to which I can feel his presence. God is close to me in direct proportion to which I can feel his presence. Guess what? That's completely untrue. (laughs) God is close to you no matter what. Because God fills the entire world. And God never leaves you. If God left you, you would be dead. If you're alive, that's proof that God hasn't left you. If there's a world, that means that God hasn't left the world. What's the proof? If God had left the world, there would be no world. And if you want a bit of stunning imagery to go with that, someone once told me, imagine a room, a dark, a room with no windows. And you close the door to this room with no windows and you turn out the lights. There goes the universe, folks. <laughs> That's it. When God no longer wills a world, it's like the light gets turned off and nothing is there. Literally, literally. So if you see yourself and you see a world around you, that is proof alone that God is with the world and God is with you. Simple as it is. Okay, let's get back to wiggling of toes now. So we said that the top is connected to the bottom. All right, now let's start to plug this in with more Torah and Kabbalistic thought. And we can flesh out this idea and you'll see something very interesting. The head, the top of the 10 spherot, what are the spherot? These are the divine energies that God created the world with. The top of the 10 spherot is called keter, which means crown. So this is a very abstract idea. What does crown mean exactly? What does keter mean? Like this is all, we're getting into jargon and it's like, all right, I'm already lost. But now I'm going to explain it. Keter means ratzon, which means will. It's pretty straightforward, actually. So your will, just like a crown sits above your thoughts, just like a crown sits above your head, your will sits above your thoughts. So what you desire, what you, what you want, will influence how you think because your will sits above your thoughts, just like a crown sits above your head. That's why keter, or crown, correlates with will, God's plan for the world, what God wants for the world. Okay? Hopefully that's straightforward. If a person is very lazy and they don't want much, then when they look out the window, They go, I'm not going to go outside because it's too cold. (laughs) So your will influences your thoughts. If a person's will is, I'm going to go out there and conquer the world. I'm going to have an amazing day. 
then you jump out of bed like a lion. Because your will influences your thoughts, and your thoughts influences your actions. Okay, so it all begins with will. That's the idea of Keter. That's the top of the universe, Keter. Now, listen to this. The Balaturim points out that Keter, God's will, is the number 620. If you spell it in Hebrew, Keter is 620. Okay? Chaf, Tav, and Resh. Right? That's 20 and 400 and 200. So that's 620. Now you want to hear something amazing? The Balaturim in that same entry. Balaturim, and he's writing approximately a thousand years ago. He's a Rishon. And I'm sure this thought is older than that. Keter, God's will, Keter is 620. Do you know what else is 620, says the Balaturim? There's 620 letters in the Aseris Adibros, in the Ten Commandments. Wow, that's a very potent correlation because what it means is that God's will for the world is the Torah because the entire Torah is contained in those Ten Commandments. So what an amazing correlation. God's will correlates with the Ten Commandments which contains the entirety of the Torah. Now God had a will for the world before he created the world. That's what it means that the Torah existed before the world was created. Because the Torah was God's plan for the world. And then God makes the world out of the Torah. Isn't that amazing? God takes his vision for the world and sculpts his vision for the world into the actual world into the material universe. Now, what did we say? We said that the time of Mashiach is called Ikfei de Mashiach, the heel of Mashiach, the heel of days. And we said, well, that's a little bit weird. Like, is that very honorable? Is that very covetic to compare the messianic period to your foot? And the answer is yes, because the idea is that when you fully manifest something, it goes from your head down to your toes. So since God willed a perfect world at the beginning, even before he created the world, he willed a perfect world. When will we see that manifest? When the head goes down to the toes. When Ratzon, when Keter, which is all the way at the top, becomes fully manifest into this world in the toes, so to speak. So this is what I'm thinking while I'm wiggling my toes. You know why? Because we have 10 toes and that's the 10 commandments. In other words, that's the manifestation below from what's going on above. Because your 10 toes, the 10 commandments, contain 620 letters, which is what? the gematria of Keter, which is all the way at the top. 
which is God's will, which is the Torah. <laughs> so God's willing the Torah at the top becomes manifest and complete below. And that's the completion of the world. And here you see another level of what it means that each one of us is a microcosm of the universe. And that when we do something practical and positive in this world, it reverberates in every dimension. I heard Reb Shlomo say in the name of Rebbe Nachman of Breslov, he said, why did Adam eat from the Eitz Adas? Why did he eat from the Tree of Knowledge? Because he didn't, he didn't realize that his actions were important. And you know something? The deepest exile that we're still in today came from that thought, not appreciating that our actions are important. In other words, what, what, you know, they, I, I remember when I was growing up, they used to say, pride goeth before a fall, right? I don't know if you grew up with that phrase. But what goes before our fall? thinking that our actions aren't important. Or sometimes I've heard people say, do you think God really cares whether you do that or that? That is the modern manifestation of that thought. Do you think God really cares? And the answer is whatever you do, even if it's the smallest thing, honestly, even if it's the smallest thing, you know, you're not supposed to put something on top of a chumash. Like, you're not. Like, maybe you were hurrying and a napkin fell on top of a chumash. Or maybe, you know, you were kind of arranging some books and you, you put a Torah book. It's a Torah book, for goodness sakes. But you put it on top of a chumash. And you get to the other side of the room. And then you look and you go, oh, there's a Torah book on, or there's a napkin or something like that on top of the chumash. And no one's in the room. And you go, what, what, what difference does it make? But then you go and you walk to the other side of the room and you correct it. That impacts the universe. Anything that requires effort, anything that requires effort. You know, my wife likes it when she walks into the kitchen and there's nothing on the kitchen table. She likes it, it just gives her some peace. That she walks in, that, that visual gives her pleasure. And I'm usually up before her, and I'll leave something on the table. And then I'll go back and I'll say, you know something? She's going to walk in, and there's going to be one small moment where I have the opportunity where she's going to have a little bit more peace when she sees that there's nothing on the table, so I take it off the table. These little things, and they're better examples than, than the ones that I've just given you, much better examples. But there's a category that I like to call the little things that are the big things. One, one of my favorite pieces of satire that I've seen over the last few months, I thought this was amazing, and it came out right at the beginning of the war. It was in the Babylon Bee, which is like the Onion. It's a humor newspaper. And the headline said, Harvard student leaves seminar on microaggressions to attend Kill the Jews rally. 
I mean, it's so, it's so horrible, you have to laugh. It's, it's literally so horrible, you have to laugh. I mean, the idea that in the handbook of student protocols at Harvard, if you, it's called now, if you mispronoun, if you, if you call someone by the wrong pronoun or by a pronoun that they haven't chosen for themselves, that this is considered an act of aggression, whereas if you call for the genocide of the Jewish people, it depends on the context. Like, that's how inside out, that's how absolutely inside out everything has become. So I came up with this phrase, and I want to share it. Maybe it'll catch on, who knows. So we have this thing called microaggressions. How about micro-affections? How about we all do micro-affections for each other? Right? Just these little things. These little things because it does matter. Because our actions do count and because they actually are very meaningful to God. And especially in a generation where we're the most spiritually insensitive. To get anyone to feel anything is, is a big deal. To get anyone to feel included, anyone to feel loved, anyone to feel cared for is actually a big deal because we've reached such a low level, essentially. And, and that's part of the plan, by the way. In other words, that shouldn't, we shouldn't have to beat ourselves up for that. To a certain extent, you know, like for instance, the, the generation that received the Torah at Mount Sinai was called the Doradea. And they, they were, they, the fix was in, meaning to say they saw miracles and then they were fed man. They were fed man for like a period of time before they received the Torah at Mount Sinai. Man is basically condensed light. That's what Rabbi Akiva says, right? That's the Ramban's understanding of Rabbi Akiva, okay? Meaning to say that man, this, this bread, these these white pellets that fell from heaven were condensed light, okay? So, so they purified us. They purified our minds. They purified our bodies. We were in a place where we could receive the Torah. So there are periods in our history where God spiritually lifts us up because he wants us to accomplish a certain thing. But there are times when God spiritually lowers us so that we can also accomplish other things, right? I mean, what did it mean in the concentration camp, we should never know from it, when one Jew gave his portion of bread to another Jew? Right, so you say, well, you know, how much was that bread worth? A penny? (laughs) Like that was a big deal? He gave a penny worth of tzedakah? What are you talking about? That's idiocy. He literally gave his life so that another person can live. Well, in other words, there, there's some things that can't be measured. And so the love that we can give to each other in a generation where we're so crushed and so low and so deprived of connection, how much is that worth? It's, it's worth a lot. It's worth a lot. So the next time you want to get out of bed in the morning, remember... Turn to your right side, and if you want to wiggle your toes and think about how 
Everything is coming from the highest place and becoming manifest in this world. And we get to be the ones that manifest it. We get to be partners with God. That we're the last gate before it, falls, before it flows through into this world. Remember, the first, God's holiest name is the Yudke Vavke. The first Yudke Vavke in the Torah is a few words after this amazing word in the Torah, Bihibaram, which the Zohar says if you rearrange the letters of Bihibaram, it spells Ba'avraham. So in other words, that's the first appearance of Avraham in the Torah. It's right after the seven days of creation. You have Avraham, and then a couple words later, the first Yudke Vavke. Why? Because the last gate that God's holiest energy flows through is us. That's, that's what it's teaching us. We're that final gate. Yes, God fills the world in dimensions beyond. We'll never even know. But as Akatsuka Rebbe says, where is God? So you want to run and raise your hand and answer that question. God, God is everywhere. That's, that's got to be the answer. He says deeper. God is where you make a place for him. Of course God is everywhere. But if you're cheating in business and if you're backstabbing other people, then what difference does it make if God is everywhere? So the last gate is through our own free will, through our own knowledge that even the small things that we're doing impact the entire universe and are very precious to God. When we understand that, we make a place for God in this world, and then his light flows through us into the world. And that should be the fixing, and God willing, we should only hear good news and be able to celebrate with each other. I'm going to tell you one more thing, just because this was one of the greatest things that I learned over Hanukkah this year. Blew my mind. So, you know, Kabbalistically, you have this idea of a square surrounded by a circle. And basically, it's a model of this world, which is the square, and heaven surrounds this world. And in fact, I even saw it online, if you're really intrigued by this idea. You can even, they even sell jewelry, which is a square on the inside, and then the outside is a circle. So this is like a, a known thing. And there are a lot of teachings on this, but I, I want to just tell you one relating to Hanukkah, which blew my mind. So why does a square represent this world? So you can say on a very simple level, well, a square has four corners, and there's sort of four directions. Like we say, Hashem Echad, we emphasize the Dalid, which is the number four at the end of Echad, right, when we say Shema. The four corners of the world, God's oneness goes to the four corners of the world. Okay, that's good. That's a good first step. On a little deeper level, a, the nature of a square is Let's say you draw the bottom line of a square, and then you know what happens? It ends. It's finite. Then let's say you go up, and you draw the line. And then you know what happens? It ends again. It's finite. Then you go the other way, and it ends. And then you go down, down and it ends. In other words, this world is finite relative to the infinite. Now, what about a circle? A circle surrounds the square. What about a circle? Well, a circle keeps on going, and it keeps on going, and it keeps on going. 
I'll tell you one of the beautiful teachings that I heard from Reb Shlomo. He says, imagine you're married. This is from a man's point of view. Imagine you're married, you come home, and you see your wife isn't wearing her wedding ring. And you say, hey, you know, what's going on? And she says, well, you gave it to me, it's mine, and I gave it to someone else. So you go, well, you know, well, wait a second. <laughs> I, I guess that makes sense, like maybe legally. It is your possession, and if it's your possession, you are entitled perhaps to give it to someone else. I guess legally that makes sense, but on the other hand, it makes no sense whatsoever. Like, how or why would you do that? And here's the deeper idea. See, like a ring is a circle, it keeps on going. There's certain transactions that take place, and they take place in the here and the now. Like you can point to the calendar date. Like there's a precise time, a finite time, when that gift was given. But there's certain types of gifts that are constantly being given. In other words, even though the transaction was made at a particular moment, the giving never stops. When we make the blessing on the Torah, we say, Noten HaTorah, which means God who in the present tense is giving us the Torah. In other words, you can, you can point to a calendar and you can say, well, it happened approximately 3,000 years ago, right, on Shavuos, that's when the transaction was made. But when God gives us the Torah, he gave us the Torah, but he's never stopped giving us the Torah. The love, the commitment between a man and a wife is ongoing. It doesn't stop. That's represented by the circular nature of the ring. So this world is a square. It's finite. It's surrounded by a circle, which is the heavenly spheres, which never end. How does that relate to Hanukkah? So if you look at each side of the dreidel, each side of the dreidel has a square on it. And the amazing thing is, is that when you spin the dreidel, the square turns into a circle. You're taking the finite realms and you're showing how the infinite exists within the finite. Right? It was just oil, plain oil, right? From a tree, olive tree that grows, you made some oil lights. But you're showing, how is it possible that oil should even light? Right? One of the great stories from the Talmud, Rav Chanina ben Dosa, his wife, was crying. They, they were poor, 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 poor. She didn't even have money for oil to light Shabbos candles. And the tzaddik says to her, so use vinegar. And then it's like, well, wait a second, vinegar doesn't light. And Rav Chanina ben Dosa says, the one who makes oil light can also make vinegar light. And so she uses vinegar and it lights. Understanding that even the finite is infinite. Even the finite is infinite. These are the awesome, awesome, awesome levels. When you spin the dreidel, you turn a square into a circle, you're showing that even the finite is limited. And now just to tie it all back together, and we'll end with this. The Nitziva Shalom, the Slonim Rebbe brings... There's 613 mitzvahs, and the rabbis added seven extra mitzvahs. The last, historically speaking, of the seven mitzvahs that the rabbis added was Hanukkah. 
That means Hanukkah is the 620th mitzvah. What did we say Keter was? Crown. It's the number 620. In other words, what was the last thing God had in mind when he created the world? Hanukkah. Meaning to say, what is God's will? Because Keter is will. What was God's will? To turn the finite into the infinite. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.